Good morning. So over the last few weeks, we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be alive? Now, if you'll recall, we've said that this isn't a question most folks spend a lot of time considering, and so you're likely to get as many answers to this question as the people you asked. Luckily for us, we've said that uh, John, one of Jesus' first and closest uh, followers, uh, had a lot to say about this. He said this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He said, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We said as Christians, like this sounds great. This makes a lot of sense. But we also know instinctively that you can know Jesus without really having a relationship with Him. And so last week we unpacked what it looked like to die well. And what we meant by dying well is handing the reins of our lives over to Jesus, not on our terms, but on the terms that He sets forth in the Scriptures. We said that dying well consisted of repenting, literally changing direction in mind and in action, and then being baptized, allowing the immersion into water, the washing away of our sins by calling on the name of Jesus. And then from there, allowing the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us to guide us and reshape the way we think, the way that we live, and the way that we speak. We wrapped up last week by saying if we are satisfied or we're content to just add a little bit of Jesus to our dead lives, rather than giving our dead lives to Jesus, we're only going to end up rotten. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me ask you, are you familiar with the movie Weekend at Bernie's? If you're not, I can give you the quick synopsis. You see, um, the plot is that these two low-level employees, Larry and Richard, they uh, work for a businessman named Bernie, and they uncover a $2 million error in the books of their company, and they go and they let Bernie know. Again, he's the boss, and uh, Bernie is so happy with them that he invites them to his island beach home for the weekend to kind of say thank you. However, what they don't know is that Bernie and his mob connections are actually responsible for this $2 million that have gone missing. And Bernie is actually planning to have the mob wipe Larry and Richard out. He's going to have them whacked. He's going to have them snuffed out. Okay? This is where things get a little bit interesting. Instead of the mob deciding to kill Larry and Richard, they decide to kill Bernie instead. So, uh, to save their skin, and, and then they go through with it, so the, the mob kills Bernie. But to save their skin, Larry and Richard convince the people on the island that Bernie is still alive. They bring him everywhere they go. You know, they put cigarettes in his mouth. They work him like a dummy for the entirety of the weekend. Dead Bernie, he goes skiing. He hosts parties. He rides around in a wagon. He sips fruity drinks. He works on his tan. Bernie has the appearance of life, but in reality, he's dead. Now, you might be asking, how in the world could anyone believe Bernie was alive for an entire weekend. And this would be the wrong question. The right question would be, how in the world 
did the studio Greenlight agree to produce Weekend at Bernie's Part 2? You see, uh, in Weekend at Bernie's 2, Dead Bernie travels to the island of St. Thomas, and there he dances in a conga line, and he even parasails. The tagline for the movie is, Weekend at Bernie's 2, no one does dead better than Bernie. Okay. To put it mildly, it's a little bit far-fetched, right? Or is it? While it might seem funny to watch a movie about a dead guy who walks around and dances and has the general appearance of life, all the while we know that he's decomposing on the inside, the question is, does this seemingly far-fetched scenario play out before our eyes literally every single day? I submit to you this morning that there are a lot of Bernies walking the streets who have the appearance of life, but in fact are actually rotten on the inside. In Mark chapter 11, we see a very telling exchange among Jesus and his disciples. You see, Mark is a really, really short gospel, and it's action-packed from start to finish. Mark moves from one scene to the next at a lightning pace. And by chapter 11, the story is almost over. In fact, it will be wrapped up in less than five chapters. Mark doesn't waste time on details or elements that don't advance his story. And and so what we come across in chapter 11 is all the more intriguing and interesting. You see, in Mark 11, it opens with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. We're beginning the last week of Jesus' life. The story is drawing to a close. As Jesus enters the holy city, the crowds are shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we get this in verse 11. It reads, So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Oh, okay. What? Right? What, what happened? Did, did you catch it? Did you catch the significance of what we saw just there? Jesus shows up at the temple. He scopes it out only to turn right around and leave. Doesn't this seem a little bit strange or a little bit out of character for Mark to include? I mean, remember, he's all about getting to the point. He's got the big picture in mind. It seems a little bit odd for him to include this little detail in his narrative. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So pause. Let's just take a time out right here. Again, we have what on the surface seems to be some random details that Mark isn't usually known for including. Jesus and his disciples are walking from the town of Bethany to the city of Jerusalem. On the way, Jesus spots a fig tree off in the distance, and the text says it is in full leaf, but it had no figs. Then Jesus, in what seems to be the response of a 
small, angry child, he curses the fig tree. But slow down and think about what you've just read. On the way to the temple, Jesus happens upon a fig tree that from a distance has the appearance of health and vitality, but upon closer inspection is actually fruitless. Let's keep going. Verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. So, what did Jesus do when he finally arrived at the temple? Does he pray? No, not really. Does he teach? Mm, He has a lot to say, but I wouldn't exactly call it teaching. No, when Jesus shows up at the beautiful temple, the most holy site of the Jewish people, he starts turning over tables. This reads more like a storyline from the WWF rather than a passage from the Scriptures. Think about it. We're only days away from the Passover, one of the most important feasts and festivals of the Jewish people. And there's no doubt folks in from literally all over the world. And then Jesus shows up and he turns the place into a pay-per-view. The religious leaders are no doubt embarrassed by his actions and, and the whole ordeal. And so this is the final straw that breaks the back of the camel. This is when they, they determine that they're going to have to come up with a final solution for Jesus. Now get this, verse 20. The next morning as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Now, you cannot miss what Mark has done here. The way that he has presented this story is so, so important. In one scene, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to fanfare, and then he enters into the temple to inspect it. In scene number two, Jesus comes to a healthy-looking fig tree, only to find it was fruitless, and so he cursed it. In scene number three, Jesus arrives at the temple and turns the place upside down because it was supposed to be a holy place, but in reality it had become a racket, a place of bleeding people of their money and robbing them of an opportunity to genuinely worship their God. In scene number four, the fig tree is now withered, And the text says it's from the root. Remember, it had been cursed. Look at Peter's response. He's shocked and astonished that this has happened. Which leads us to the point in verse 22. says, Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. Listen, Jesus isn't talking about a Sunday school kind of religion. He's talking about something deeper. You see, the real Jesus wants His followers to have a real faith. The kind of faith that produces something. The fig tree had the appearance of health, but had no fruit. 
Perhaps one day it would. Perhaps someday in the future it would be fruitful. But when the master showed up, when the creator came to town, it only looked good on the outside. It failed its inspection. When Jesus showed up at the temple, the beautiful holy temple of the Jewish people, it looked great from a distance. But up close, when inspected on the inside, Jesus found it lacking and condemned it. Later, Matthew records Jesus addressing the religious leaders on this very same issue, saying this, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, looking good on the outside isn't good enough. The fig tree was cursed for this. And Jesus is hinting at the fact that the temple would suffer the same fate. The key ingredient to a life of fruit is a focus on faith. We may be successfully fooling the people around us into thinking that our faith is real, that we have life, but in the end, the inspector of our fruit the inspector of the fruit of our faith, he will not be duped. He will not be tricked. Jesus doesn't judge the fig tree on its potential and what might happen in two months or in ten years. Jesus judges it based on that moment and what it's producing then. Jesus' brother James asks the million-dollar question in James chapter 2, verse 14, saying, What good is it Dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? James answers his own question just a few verses later in verse 17. He says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. James' point here can't be overstated. Can a faith that doesn't do anything, that isn't accompanied by fruit, can that kind of faith save us. If we come to Jesus and we say we want to be just like Him, yet we do none of the things that He does or value the things that He valued, are we actually alive or are we continuing to rot away on the inside? Jesus seemed to think that His followers could exhibit great amounts of faith. He went on to say this in verse 23, I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it'll happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything and if you believe that you've received it, it'll be yours. Unfortunately, this is not the faith that most Christians possess today. It's tough to say, but it's the hard truth. Let's be honest, most Christians are not moving mountains with their faith. They won't even speak to their closest friends about Jesus. How can we have a faith that moves mountains if we don't have enough faith that Jesus will get us through sharing the gospel with someone we love? Most Christians don't have the kind of faith that moves mountains. They don't possess the kind of faith that will move their Bibles from the shelf to their laps. One of the more obvious places a follower's faith is put on display is when they forgive someone who's hurt them. 
How can we have a faith that moves mountains if we don't possess the kind of faith that God will deal justly with those who take advantage of and hurt us? It takes a lot of faith to forgive someone, to let go of our hurts, and to trust that God will will deal with them in a just manner. But look at what Jesus does. He connects forgiveness to faith in verse 25. He says, But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Brothers and sisters, we've got to stop pretending. It's comical to watch Bernie pretend to be alive all the while we know he's decomposing on the inside. But we, you and I, the followers of Jesus, we can't live that way. We can't settle for the appearance of life. We need the real thing. We need the kind of faith that produces love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. The kind of faith that is the result of the Holy Spirit reshaping us from the inside out so that we can focus on making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Maybe you've just been pretending. Again, in the most honest parts of your soul, you'd probably admit to just kind of going through the motions. If that's the case, I want you to know that there is no time like this and no day like today to get real with your Savior. Again, He's not going to be duped. He's not going to be tricked into believing that there is a real faith present when there's no fruit present. And so I would humbly suggest to you today, if you've never determined that you're going to follow Jesus, that you repent today, that you change directions both mind and in action, that you be baptized into Christ, that you wash away your sins and call on the name of your Savior Jesus, and that you allow the Holy Spirit to come and live in you, to reshape you, to guide you, to change the way you think, live, and speak. I encourage you to do that today. Again, there's no time like the present and there's no day like today to give your life to Jesus. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll sing one last song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for providing for us in the life of your Son. Father, help us to be faithful followers of your Son. Help us not to settle for a surfacey kind of faith that looks good to our neighbors, but the, the real kind of faith that changes people's lives and produces fruit. Thank you for including us in your kingdom. We love you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.